Welcome to the Auto Supply Chain Profits Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future in the auto supply chain. I'm Jan Griffiths, your co-host and producer. I'm Kathy Fisher, your podcast host. Our mission is to help automotive manufacturers recognize, prepare for, and profit from whatever comes next in the auto supply chain. I'm Terry Onika, your podcast host. We'll be giving you best practices and key supply chain insights from industry leaders. Because the auto supply chain is where the money is. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Auto Supply Chain Profits Podcast. Let's check in with one of those profits, my co-host, Terry Onika. How are you, Terry? I'm doing great. How about you? Good, good. It's been an interesting time. I'm so glad that the strike is over and I don't have to be in the local media every five minutes. That's great. <laughs> yep. What have you been up to? Well, actually, I got interviewed by Plastics Machinery and Manufacturing this week about the oh. strike. So what happens, you know, what's next with the, with the strikes and what my thoughts were. And I'm worried about the next big disruption that's going to start happening is the lower tiers of the supply chain. And those, as we transition from ICE to Bev, like who's watching them and who's making sure that they're all going to make it, right? As their volumes start to decrease and they don't have anything to replace it, what's going to happen next? So I share a lot of the same concerns you have, Jan, about the lower tier. Yeah. And even though we're recording this at a moment when the strike is over, the impact of that strike has yet to be seen. We haven't seen the full impact to the supply base yet. And that's happening right now. But let's turn our attentions, as you said, you're talking about the transition from ICE to BEV and somebody who is clearly at the forefront, who has his eyes on the future, but his feet very much grounded in reality of what's happening in the world of the automotive supply chain. And that is our very own Michael Robinette. Michael is the executive director at S&P Global Mobility. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be aboard. We love having you. You know, I've been listening to the podcast and a lot of great topics, so I'm happy to contribute. It's perfect to have you on because, as you know, the title of this podcast is Auto Supply Chain Profits, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. And you're a bit of a prophet, aren't you? Because you're always looking forward into the uh, global forecasting and global updates. So give us a bit of a macro view. What's happening in this transition from ICE to BEV? Well, in your earlier comments, you mentioned, uh, you know, this whole idea of disruption. And frankly, we've had extraneous disruptions for the better part of four years now. It started with the GM strike, the UAW in the fall of 19, and it's been a crescendo ever since. It's been COVID, then chips, then a little bit less chips, then inflation, then Russian Ukraine, and you name your other calamities, they've all come along. And then, of course, we had this labor disruption uh, with the UAW and actually a very short one with Unifor as well up in Canada this fall. And uh, like you, I'm happy that we're beyond that. So I was chatting with a client the other day saying, while all these disruptions are behind us, the collateral from them is what we're going to have to deal with going forward. And, and certainly there are many of them, labor availability, labor economics, other forms of economics working their way through the supply chain, higher cost of capital. You know, capitals two or two and a half, almost three X what it was two, three years ago. So making capital decisions is much more important to the enterprise than it ever was before. 
So all these factors kind of worked in, and then you add in this ever-present uh, ice to BEV transition and whatever that slope looks like. It's a critical time from a strategic perspective for not only the vehicle manufacturers, but tier ones. And as Terry, you mentioned earlier, tier twos and tier threes that may not have that transition strategy. So it's a it's a heady time in the industry. What are you projecting as far as, you know, when we're going to see a lot of of BEV vehicles in the market, and what does that look like globally? To be completely honest, Terry, it's shifting a lot, and and it, and it matters by region, it matters by segment. So China is moving ahead, their regulatory structure, but also a lot of their domestic manufacturers are very focused on moving battery electric forward. So it's less of a hybrid structure and really more of a full battery electric structure. So there's going to be some some fits and starts as they work through that. Europe, they're moving in a similar direction, but I think the one factor that's finding its way into this is affordability. We could wish that people want to buy battery electric vehicles, but if they're not priced appropriately or don't have the right total cost equation for the customer, well, that's a problem. And we're starting to see that in Europe, and but also starting to really see that in North America. So the answer to your question is sort of multi-speed, what we call the, the major markets of China, Europe, and North America, each one working at its own speed, each one having its own regulatory environment, its own customers that want or don't want to accept battery electric. So we kind of mix that all together, and then you're, you'll find different answers. But suffice to say, it is difficult from a perspective of so many factors have to work their way into this, both strategically customer, environment, the grid, all have to really line up for this to go perfectly. And frankly, I think we've seen it will not go perfectly. One of the things I was wondering about is I remember back years ago, we were waiting for that 100 million units per year. What we do almost you... got there. We did. We almost got there, right? We almost got there. It was so close. What do you see in the next five, 10 years? Where do you think we'll be at? It's a good question because affordability, and I brought that up earlier, is really going to find its way. And even in China, to be honest, as affordability, and it's kind of a little bit of chicken and egg, can we get battery costs down enough to bring that total vehicle cost down to maybe what we've experienced in the past from an ice level perspective? Now we have to look at total cost of ownership, things like what's the cost of fuel versus the, the cost of power and all of those factors. But in, certainly that initial cost of the vehicle is critical. And that is holding the total market down. I think anybody that tells you different is wrong. It is affordability and this incredible inflation that we've seen lately and hopefully starting to abate a little bit, but that's mixing its way in as well. And that is going to damp down demand somewhat from an affordability perspective. So are we going to hit hundred million? I have looked at our longer term forecast out past 2030. I think we're close to it, if not just over it. But, you know, the days of maybe 110 or 115 are well behind us. The, the market will not support that. One other thing I'd like to get your opinion on, too, is the autonomous vehicle. We heard a lot about that again, probably five years ago or so, but it's gotten really quiet. What's the latest update on autonomous vehicles and where they're headed? I think that the vehicle manufacturers are using autonomous capability to improve the driving experience and improve safety. So rather than the government mandating, you need to make your vehicle safer by making the crash structure better or or the like, they're increasingly government and, and other authorities are going to start to think about how can we use um, sensors and cameras and LIDAR and all those other factors, all those other capabilities to make sure we don't get into the accident in the first place. 
and therefore maybe reduce the cost and, and the weight of some of these vehicles going forward. So to answer your question, uh, if you think about sort of the SE levels, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and where sort of one being, you know, cruise control and two and three having adaptive cruise, uh, lane keeping, lane uh, adjustment and the like, I think that's where the manufacturers are going to focus most of their time, I would say, over the next decade is, is really what we call level two, uh, level two plus. Level three means that the vehicle's starting to make decisions. And I know of a lot of OEMs that, are, that aren't willing to cross that bridge just yet from a legal perspective and a liability perspective. So I think you're going to push level two as much as possible. But essentially, that's where we see uh, autonomous, at least as an organization, at a 30,000 foot level, that's where we see most of the uh, focus going. When we look in the future to concerns about the lower tiers in the supply chain, just as we switch to from ICE to BEV, but also a lot of the OEMs are looking at vertical integration, owning their own supply chain. What should you do if you're a lower tier supplier? What is the impact of all of this going to be on the supply chain? It is uh, significant because I, I would say that a lot of uh, tier two and tier three suppliers knew that battery electric was coming. And, and you mentioned ADAS earlier, and, and ADAS is a factor, but it's really, frankly, from a structural perspective, it's really BEV. It's really battery electric that really alters the structure and the ecosystem in, in the industry. They had been sort of hearing about it in 16 and 17. We had some great times in 18, so kind of out of sight, out of mind. And then 19 came along, early part of 19, no problem. Hey, maybe we should start thinking about this. We're hearing about some of these battery plants and some OEMs are making some overtures. And then the strike came, the 2019 strike and then COVID. And then we were we all got basically moved into short-term firefighting. But a lot of tier twos and tier threes, they had their own issues to deal with and thinking about how do I as a supplier, find a way to transition into the battery electric world if I'm not going to be a natural evolution already. I'll have to put that on the back burner. And now here we are in 2023 and kind of it's 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 come up very, very quickly. So I too am very concerned about twos and threes. Now we got to be careful not to lump them all together. So we characterize suppliers as being BEV negative, BEV agnostic, and BEV positive. And, and as you all know, twos and threes fall into those categories as well. Sometimes they can transition their work or their capabilities into other industries, maybe moving a medium heavy truck, off-highway, industrial, defense, aerospace. I mean, those are the kind of the classic destinations that a lot of these suppliers look at. But nobody's got volume like automotive, like light vehicle automotive. Nobody makes half a million of something every year. I mean, eyes light up when you hear about those numbers. In aerospace, where you're building a small, small fraction of that, it's a different manufacturing mentality. So twos and threes, again, a lot of them that are very focused on, let's say, BEV negative areas. Yeah, they certainly, if they haven't transitioned yet, that's a problem. You talk about the volume, and that's interesting. Do you see in the future, Michael, that the idea of volume production as we know it today, brands as we know them today? You know, I remember when I started in uh, program management, it was on a, an Explorer launch and a Ranger launch, and we loved it, right? Because the volumes were huge. It was wonderful business. But do you see a point in the future as we transition to mostly Bev that the players are going to change, the OEMs will change? And as we see more entrance into the OEM space, I mean, 
BYD, VinFast, you know, there's, there's tons of them out there, right? Do you see that landscape changing so the volumes will be lower, but there'll be far more choices for the consumer because there will be more OEMs? Do you think that's a possibility in the future? I think we're going to see a mix of new players, new entrants, as we call them, and some of the traditionals that are that are going to be able to, let's call it transition appropriately. But I, I don't disagree with you that there may be some larger traditional Western players that, that don't make the cut. Like we've also seen with the new players coming in, you have absolutely got to be well capitalized. You know, someone that comes in and say, I've got a couple hundred million dollars and I want to start a car company. And, you know, I, you almost under your breath going, well, that's frankly, you may as well just give everybody your money now because it, this is a long, long process. And even with the faster development times of BEVs, it's still a long process to work the safety and reliability and building an assembly plant, building a supply base, building all that sourcing. It, as you guys well know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it is such a process. So I would say that uh, on the volume side, it is an interesting point. You're seeing the vehicle manufacturers, at least the smarter ones, they're basically saying, you know what? I'm only going to have a couple of e-motors. I'm only going to have a couple of battery types because I want to build in scale. That's the only way I can get the cost out of this thing is building in scale. So I would characterize sort of the, the bottom of the vehicle or, you know, basically sort of the wheels on down, they'll try and commonize as much as they can there. So battery cells, charging structures, uh, things like some of the electronics, even the thermal, they'll try and standardize as much of that as possible so they can save money. It's the top hat where, frankly, there's less money involved. Yeah, there's doors and glass and, and other components, but they're more easily changed. And so to answer your question, I agree, you're going to see more top hats, fewer volumes of, hey, here's the Explorer, and there's going to be half a million of them out on the market. It's probably going to be more Explorer this and Ranger that and, and some other types of nameplates that kind of make up all of that. But underneath, it's got a lot of commonality because that's where the OEMs save money. That's where they save money. When you look at the forecast in the future, who are you seeing that are going to be the major players in that volume if you look out the next five years? It's interesting now because you've got the Teslas and the BYDs that are doing a, a great job. You've got the traditional OEMs that are, are catching up. Who do you think the volume is going to be coming from in the next five years? I'd say the couple of factors there, and I, I'm going to go off in a minute and then come back to this, but the, the fact that the China market is evolving so quickly is having a significant impact on the Western manufacturers. So, you know, when a BYD uh, and an SAIC and a Xili and a, you know, Neo and all these, you've got these domestic Chinese players that are doing very, very well, some not as well, but they are gaining share very, very quickly. As they gain that share, it's the Westerns that are taking it on the chin. So the, the fact that we had a lot of Western OEMs, either in Europe or in North America, and even to a lesser extent in Korea and Japan, that were able to trust upon China for, to be that steady eddy. Oh, yeah, the volume's good. We're doing okay there. There's a good amount of innovation. You know, we've, we're driving some volume. We're gaining some economies of scale. As they have challenges there, that, has, that will absolutely impact their home markets, either here or in Japan or Europe, whatever the case might be. So that is providing a little bit of a break for some of the Western OEMs. So 
it is going to continue to be a, a challenge in terms of who their major players are. But certainly the BYDs of the world kind of on the backs of, of a China. Others like Xili, which as we all know is Volvo, but have added a lot of other brands and capability. They're going to continue to do very, very well. Others like SAIC and and, and some of the newer upstarts, Xiaoping and the like. You know, it, again, it'll depend on capitalization, but but there a lot of them are well on their way. And they're going to start to move up into that top 10 characterization. And in, with China declining from a Western perspective, that's going to put a bit of a break on some of the more traditional players in terms of their overall global volumes going forward. Do you think um, BYD is going to come in through the back door, through Mexico? If you've been to Mexico lately, BYD everywhere. In Europe, I was in the UK earlier this year, BYD everywhere. And then a company that I know and love with my British heritage and my first sports car was an MG, an MG midget. And MG is now Chinese owned. I think it's SAIC. And MG has a, a SUV model that in the UK is everywhere. In Mexico, I was shocked to see an MG dealership and that car taking off in Mexico. Is there a concern that manufacturing will be in Mexico and will come into the U.S.? To double up on what you just said, with the most recent labor agreements, if you're an OEM and you're saying, well, I, I need a brand new facility, I've looked around, I, I don't have anything that meets my needs, where are they going to look? Yeah, Mexico is going to be a natural location. The Chinese brands are doing very well in Mexico. They are gaining, they have some natural entry points. And especially from, a, from an import perspective, because you don't have the same tariff structure that you have between China and the United States. China is definitely going to make some inroads. The only way that they're going to be able to gain volume in the U.S. and Canada through NAFTA is by building here in North America and also procuring batteries here and even some of the critical inputs. So they'll make some inroads in Mexico, but to really build any volume in the U.S. and Canada, it is really going to have to come from domestic manufacturing importing is going to be difficult. And, you know, you talked about backdooring and there has been some backdooring in the past, but people now know what it is and they could pick up on it kind of quickly. So coming in through Korea or coming in through some other location into the U.S., the OEMs have kind of picked up on that uh, and, and therefore will we'll push back where required. So it's going to have to be a domestic manufacturing footprint that does it. And, and I don't put it past them. I think it's very real over the next five to six years. Looking out over the next five years, anything that you want to tell our listeners about that they should be watching out for? It's a great point. I went, and others in our company have been telling our customers for some time now, you know, Bev launches are going to be lumpy. I, I can't find a better word to describe it, to be honest with you. I had a, someone with my company said, oh, you should say bumpy. I don't like bumpy. I like lumpy better. <laughs> lumpy being it, it, nothing's going to go to plan. Uh, and despite all the great work that OEMs and suppliers do to try and get these launches going, everything's new. New platform, sometimes new plan, new propulsion system, new supply base, new processes to put it all together. New, 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 new. Anytime you folks know really well, time anything's new, that's a synonym for uh, an ah, you know what. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. I've been at this for a little while. I remember Bob Eaton walking onto the, the floor of the auto show, I think in 98, January, maybe January 98 to launch the new Grand Cherokee and I had a bag of parts 
dropped it on the stage and said, these are the only parts that are common between the old Grand Cherokee and the new Grand Cherokee. And everybody in the media, they're all clapping. Oh, this is wonderful. Congratulations. And a lot of us in the back going, oh, you have no idea what you're in for. In our industry, you want to carry over whatever you can. And because it's already been proven, you don't have to go through the whole process of proving it out. You've already done that. And it's a known. And then when you launch BEVs, there are almost zero knowns, zero. So everything's new. And, and I think that these launches are going to be very difficult. They're going to be elongated. I hate to say it, but the OEM is going to tell you X, you probably should plan on Y, just because it is what it is. The DNA of the supply base is vastly different. As a recovering supply chain person, <laughs> I'm used to dealing with traditional automotive suppliers. You start to bring in electronic suppliers, software, a totally different ecosystem. And it is an ecosystem. It's not a traditional, I'm the buyer, you're the supplier. I'm going to buy this. These are my terms and conditions, you know, and if you don't like them, you know, that's the way it's going to go. Those days are gone. We don't want to admit that, but they are. So recognizing that the supply-based DNA is vastly different and it will need a different type of leadership, a different type of buyer, that's something that I think suppliers have to focus on. And I'm going to go to a point that Terry always talks about, and that is when you talk about launches, making sure that the supply chain, that every step of that part number is locked and loaded and you've gone through the due diligence. Terry, I mean, you know more about this than I do, but what are some of the things, Terry, that tier ones and tier twos really need to look at as they launch BEVs? What we always recommend is making sure you're doing scenario planning, right? Looking at the various scenarios that can happen. Because as Michael was talking, I was thinking you've got lumpy BEV, which means people are still buying ice, right? So if you're in the ice, you're going to expect a really bumpy ride as well. You're going to have two different kind of directions, but how they impact production and how many they're going to make is going to be really difficult to figure out. So you're going to really have to stay on top of it. I think there's three things too. There's, you're right. It's the forecasting, you know, having a tool and understanding scenario planning. And thirdly, plan for every part. And I know, you know, people are probably listening to this going, oh, we do that already. Um, I don't think so. Prove no. me wrong. No. But really going through every step and making sure that part and that supplier is set up in the RP system and ready to rock and roll. We miss it so often. We skim over that when we launch new programs. We don't give it the attention it deserves. In a BEV world, it's going to be far more important. Jen, to your point, it's interesting. We, we tell clients, and, and you've been at this for as long as I have, and you walk into a supplier and the supplier shows the OEM, watch, I can build for an hour at the rate that you want yeah. and everything's good. Oh, great. That's great. And everybody walks away. They go have dinner, have a couple of drinks and go home. Check that box. Great. That's all done. In the Bev world, because of critical inputs and all these new processes, you may be able to run for an hour, but can you run at that same rate for 10 straight weeks? I think that running at rate, running at, at the peak capacity is going to be a much different animal in the Bev world than it has been. Now, Tesla's been able to figure it out, but they've been at it for a long time. You know, and they've made a lot of mistakes. We all know about some of the manufacturing issues that they've had to overcome. And it's been lumpy and it will continue to be. I think one other factor that, Terry, you mentioned is this whole idea of this, this insourcing. We did some analysis and 
In the ice world, we're about 65% supplier value add. That's kind of the way you, we think about it. The number's been 70. It's been, it, let's just call it 65 uh, for an average, not counting advertising and marketing and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of the manufactured cost of the vehicle. When we go over to the to the BEV side, because you know OEMs have said, "Well, we're going to make our own e motors, and we're actually going to make some of our own electronics, or you know, charging structures and and the like." And of course, we're now we found friends to make batteries with. Now that number goes down to probably around forty five percent. The supplier doesn't have the same leverage that they did in the ice world versus the BEV world. That is another message that gets lost a lot. And everybody said, well, that's somebody else's problem because that's 10 years from now and I'll be retired by then. But it is going to be a problem. There's no doubt. It's a double whammy. And I hope that executives at all levels of the supply chain are thinking about that. It's coming. I, I worry because I don't see a lot of discussions about it, at least when I'm out talking personally uh, with organizations and automotive suppliers about it. And I just really wonder how that's going to come crashing down on us. Yeah, I, I think to your point, and, and again, you came from the sourcing world as well. You know, there's all this discussion that we've had really difficult relationships, and I, I'm going to be trying to be careful what I say, but we've had difficult OEM supplier relationships, whether it's the Plant Moran study or whatever else, you can just see it in the industry. With the incredible labor economics that we're going to face over the next three to four years, I find it hard to believe that those relationships are going to get any better. I really find it hard to believe, especially and also with the amount of capital that suppliers and OEMs, but suppliers too, are being asked to devote to programs that quote unquote haven't been proven. That's another issue as well. So it's going to be interesting next couple of years, that's for sure, from an OEM su supplier relationship perspective. Certainly, there is there are challenges, but there is also opportunity. And yes. that is one yes. thing that we are great at in this industry is taking on challenges and we are resilient every step of the way. And to close us out, Michael, today, one piece of advice that you would give to the automotive supply base in one short sentence, what would that be? Do whatever you can to diversify your customer base and operational efficiency. Whatever you make, make it as well as you can. So it's better than the next person. There it is. Beautiful. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Are you ready to find the money in your supply chain? Visit www.autosupplychainprofits.com to learn how or click the link in the show notes below.